Last week we were looking at the first part of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where we launched into an understanding of what that final day is to be all about. We're going to be turning back now to 2 Thessalonians 2 which is really one of the foundational, one of the pivotal passages of scripture that deals with the end times. And while we're going to be looking today at verse 6 down through verse 12, what I'd like to do is to begin reading in verse 1 and take it down to that point because we need to get a sense of the overall picture that the Apostle Paul wants for you and for me to be able to have. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 is where I'll read, down through verse 12, pivotal to understand where we are now where all of this is headed is we're trying to figure out what on earth is God doing in this world. So in verse 1 of this second chapter, of this second letter, Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you and I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Just as clear as can be, isn't it? Well, we are looking at the future through the lens of the scriptures, which is the way we go about doing it. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our fathers, for coming into your presence now, thank you for the opportunity to sing to you. Thank you for the gifted ones that were leading us 
in that part of our worship. Thank you for the privilege of giving back to you what you've given to us. You're the great giver. And now, Father, we're about to explore what it is you've said. Now, you know the future better than we can understand our past. From eternity past to eternity future, all things, all things are known by you. And in the details of the events that take place globally, all the various issues have been confronted generationally. And the difficult circumstances we are continuously facing personally, you're there. There is not one inch of life that surprises you. So we thank you, Father, in advance for being the proactive God who loved us before we first chose to love you and then found out all along it was you who's wooing us. So, Lord, what we want to do is to explore the depths and the breadths of your word, to be able to understand how past, present, and future all relate, to see where the trends of life are governed by the truth of your word, where they take us. Not to be fearful, but be confident if we put our faith and trust exclusively in Jesus who died for our sins. So in these minutes together, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's where your thoughts lead you that can sometimes surprise you. I had simply gone downstairs and was putting a few items away here and there and went into a corner of our basement where we we view it as our sports center. And there's a particular table and it's got old baseballs and baseball gloves and various sports books and so on. But what caught my attention, and I picked it up, and I had to try it out once again, was my old hockey stick. It was a Northland model. And it took me back in time to the days in which we would play hockey together. And as I was thinking, a thought crossed my mind. It came from the words from the lips of Wayne Gretzky, one of the greatest hockey players of all time, that has direct bearing upon this passage we're looking at today. Because Gretzky said that a good hockey player plays where the puck is. But a great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be. A good hockey player plays where the puck is. But a great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be. Now, too many people get wrapped up in the is and are trying to figure out life. 
But you see, the Christian has been equipped through God's word to understand where things will be. God, in essence, is moving the puck up ice. So what I want to do now is to connect the is with the will be that's found here in these verses, because these verses have a lot to do with matters of time and timing without being time-bound. I want to draw out for you now three significant stages as we pick up where we left off last week, three significant stages of time pertaining to the now as it relates to the not yet that better equip us to understand where things are headed. Now the first flows out of verses 6 and 7. That as you and I, as we connect the past, the present, and the future, now note with me stage 1, which we'll call here the time of restraint. Now, The Thessalonian people have been overtaken at this point with this understanding that Paul had given them of the day of the Lord. And their great fear was that the day of the Lord was now at hand, was in the present, and there was emotional upheaval in their midst. Now, Paul wanted to correct that sense of spiritual hysteria. And so he says, in essence, with regard to the day of the Lord in verse 3, There are three significant precursors. Notice them carefully. We covered them last week. The rebellion comes first. You see that in verse 3? The word rebellion is the word for apostasy. There is a breaking away from God's will, God's word, God's law, God's sovereign plan. That is a future day. Notice that it says the rebellion. There have been many rebellions, past, present, and there will be future, but there is one that we will call the rebellion. He refers to here. And then we notice that a second precursor, the man of lawlessness, is revealed, literally unveiled. You see, the veil is lifted. Now, when you see the man of lawlessness, you and I have got to understand that what God has done through the ages is to permit various ones that the scriptures have used various terms to describe. For example, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, he is labeled the little horn. If you were to make your way, say, to Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17, he would be called the worthless shepherd. Here in Thessalonians, he's referred to as the man of lawlessness. And what John wrote in 1 John in particular is that he is the Antichrist. Here, Paul says that the rebellion comes first. Second, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The veil is lifted. He is anti-God's moral law. And third, the temple then is desecrated. Because in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Shades of Genesis 3. So now what you've got before yourself are the three precursors pertaining to the day of the Lord that we covered. A quick review. 
And so now you pick it up here and you realize then that what Paul is about to inform you and inform me that in the midst of all these comings and goings of oppositional forces to God, with regard to that whole matter, in verse 6, notice the present. And you know what is restraining him now. Notice the now. It's a present. In other words, what we're saying here is that at this moment, in the spirit globally, the spirit of the Antichrist, opposition to God, God's will, God's Son, there is still astoundingly a restraint, a spiritual restraint, a supernatural restraint that has been placed upon the opposition to God's sovereign plan waiting to be unleashed in that final day. And he says, you know what is restraining him now. And you say, well, Gary, what am I supposed to know with regard to what is restraining him now? And you're asking great questions. Because in Acts chapter 17, what Paul had done, and we have referenced this, is that for three consecutive Sabbaths, must have been long lectures, the apostle Paul stood in the synagogue in Thessalonica and taught God's word. And so he must have then explained to them what it is right now that is restraining this anti-Christ matter. And then it goes on to say, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. In other words, now the veil will be lifted in that future day. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you might recall the story that John Bunyan describes of Christian. And he's approaching Palace Beautiful, hopes to get some lodging there, He begins to walk down this very narrow passage, and he's leading him to the porter's lodge when he sees two lions in the way. Opposition. Obstacles. And then Bunyan adds parenthetically, quote, the lions were chained. But he, speaking of Christian, saw not the chains, unquote. The believer right now is able to simply walk with God, spend time in God's word, knowing in essence that the lions are still chained, that that day is still to come where there will be the unchaining of the opposition. So what Paul is saying that here in the present, no matter how difficult life is right now, believe it or not, there is still this chaining. There is still this sense of restraint. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Now bear in mind that God is sovereign over time And Satan is the counterfeiter of God. He cannot be creative. All he can do is mimic. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. We're told in Galatians chapter 4. But even Satan comes about with his ways of trying to counterfeit God's timing. 
So you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. And in verse 7, for the mystery, the secret, the mystery of lawlessness is, now notice the present, already at work. When you watch what's happening with ISIS, when you see the spiritual meltdown happening globally, bear in mind, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he, that restraining influence, is out of the way. No. Bear in mind, then, that what God is doing is that he is keeping everything in check for that final hour. Now, many along the way have tried to associate various political figures and papal figures to the one known as the lawless one, or as John put it, the Antichrist. Some during World War II attributed it to Mussolini. And when Mussolini was strutting in force across the Mediterranean, shorelines, and he was asked to explain his swift rise to power. He answered, quote, I found Europe full of empty throne rooms and simply walked in and took one of them. Now, all that we see thus far throughout the course of time, past and present, is simply foretastes, precursors of what is still to come. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, The Apostle John had written, as we covered last week, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So generation by generation, there has been this oppositional force to Christ. And Satan has used one Antichrist figure after another, generation by generation. So Cain killed Abel, trying to sever the line that would lead to Jesus Christ coming into this world to die for our sins. A pharaoh would have babies in Egypt put to death. But a Moses appears on the scene, paving the way for this exodus into the wilderness. There would be a Haman in the book of Esther who had put, he would hope, Israelites to death, annihilate the population. But God sovereignly breaks in for such a time as this. He has placed Esther in a position of authority. In the Newer Testament, you will find Herod putting babies to death, trying to keep the one promised to be king of the Jews from appearing on the landscape and taking the throne. All of these were simply antichrist, generational by generational, Moments by which people try to stop God's plan from reaching fulfillment until this one, the Antichrist, is according to what John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, comes our way. Well, we've got to bear in mind that just as there is a line of Davidic sons who passed on the promise until Messiah came, so there is an Antichrist, anti-Messiotic line of power grabbers who continue to try to thwart that until that final one comes. And so all of those near fulfillments are simply precursors toward that great fulfillment that is still 
in the future. How close, we don't know. But here you and I are told that the first stage that we've got to be able to comprehend is stage one. It is the time of restraint. But now you move to stage two. And in stage two, you embrace verse eight. Stage two is the time of revelation. And you say, Gary, where do you get that? Notice carefully here that just as in verse six, it had read, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed, unveiled in his time. So in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The word revealed here is the same word which is used to describe Jesus Christ, only here it's used to describe the one who's opposed to Jesus Christ because there's a counterfeit line that is continuously unfolding generation by generation by generation. It means literally the unveiling of one. Now, what we find here is that the veil is being lifted, so to speak, off the face, and the lawless one is being revealed. And notice furthermore that you and I are told here it's whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Now, notice again the power of the word that just as Jesus Christ could stand at the tomb of Lazarus and say to Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus, and he would. And he would bring life out of a death matter. So likewise, what he does here is bring death out of a life matter. You have a sovereign God who speaks the word into existence, who can speak life into a matter of death and can bring death out of a matter of life. Here is the power of the word, which is again why we work verse by verse, exploring and explaining the word of God. And then the lawless one will be unveiled, so to speak, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by what? The appearance, the appearance in verse 8 of his coming. The appearance carries with it the idea of an epiphany, which means a manifestation. It's the coming of Christ, and at the coming of Christ at that last day, all these things are put together. And so God is in control. And when you read that, my mind goes back to a, a prayer that you can find in the Valley of Vision where one of the Puritans had penned, That day is no horror to me, for thy death has redeemed me, thy spirit fills me, thy love animates me, and thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust. I waited for thee, and not waited in vain. And then adds at the end of his prayer, Oh God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. And so now you and I see here what is promised, what is established, and there is the sense of a revealing of the one who did not want to give an account to the one who discloses all. It happened during 1942. Red Cross packages had been arriving for prisoners held in German concentration camps. 
And when at one point the International Red Cross asked for an accounting, it turned out that Buchenwald alone had some seven carloads, 21 to 23,000 packages that were unaccounted for. The writer tells us some of the prisoners who survived to see the collapse of the Third Reich were highly amused watching the Nazi officers feverishly clearing, revealing, and empty Red Cross cartons from their offices in April 1945. The packages had not been intended for the Nazi officers, but they took them anyway. They seized what did not belong to them. And now, and now, it has been revealed. Now, what God is saying here is that generation by generation, there has been this Antichrist slide. The Apostle John draws that on First 1 John 2, that seizes what does not belong to him, the power grabbers of history, until in the fullness of time, the second coming of Jesus Christ, it is revealed. And this one has tried to remain unaccountable. He's described, you see, as the lawless one. So in verse 8, the lawless one will be unveiled, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, bringing death to the one who has life, who has the same capacity that to bring life to that which is dead. And he brings to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the epiphany. But once you and I have spotted that, we're ready then for stage three. And we're moving in sequence here to understand where all of these events lead. Because when you reach stage three here, you've moved past the time of restraint, you move through the time of revelation until in verses 9 through 12, thirdly, you move into the time of retribution. Notice how the evil one mimics Christ. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Mark the phrase, the coming. The word coming is the very same word coming which is used to describe Jesus Christ when he came the first time, when he comes the second time. In other words, what you find here in this descriptive is a counterfeit coming. What we are dealing with globally and nationally and even in the regional and personal realms of life, truth versus error, the authentic versus The inauthentic, the counterfeit, wants to, as the counterfeiter, get people to believe that what is false is true and what is true is false. Now in verse 9 then, watch the counterfeit coming. The counterfeit coming is of the lawless one. And furthermore, what you and I are told here is how he is animated. He is animated by the activity of Satan. Now the word activity here comes from the Greek word energizo. It carries with it the idea to energize operationally. In other words, what I'm saying now is that there is an operation that has been put in place 
The Garden of Eden explains it to great extent when the counterfeiter arrived on the scene to get Adam and Eve to be swayed, to put faith and trust in what is false. That's why he came not as an atheist, but again, the evil one came as a religious personage. And furthermore, he came to carry on a religious conversation, not denying God's existence, but to discuss God's nature. And so now, what we've got is a counterfeit religious strategy unfolding here in verse 9. The counterfeit coming of the lawless one is energized operationally by Satan. What I want you to notice is how he goes about offering false credentials. He knows that Jesus Christ credentialed himself through various means such as raising Lazarus from the dead just prior to going to die for our sins and being raised the third day. Satan, knowing this, has come up with a series of false credentials to move people away from Jesus. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity, the energizing operational work of Satan with what? All power, number one. False signs, number two, and wonders, number three. You see that in verse 9. Now your mind should immediately be going back then to what Moses confronted in the land of Egypt where every time God evangelistically produced still another sign another wonder and the likes, miracle, then the false spiritual forces in the land of Egypt counterfeited those miracles until they were undone because God is sovereign and Satan is not. But thus far, you see three counterfeit strategies that are being described here, their final day, all power, False signs, wonders tied to Satan. And then adds in verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So what he does then is utilizes, as he did in the Garden of Eden, deception in order to take people away from the truth and put faith and trust in the lie. And this happens in Islam. And while there are the more general signs that they have in the Quran of the approaching last hour, many of the Islamic theological manuals also give a list of more specific signs. According to the tradition from al-Muslim, the prophet gave the following comment about his take on the last hour. Thereupon he, speaking of Muhammad, said, It will not come until you see ten signs. And in this connection he made a mention of the smoke, the Dajjal, often called the Antichrist, the beast, the rising of the sun from the west, the descent of Jesus, son of Mary, Gog and Magog, and landslidings into three places, one in the east, one in the west, one in Arabia, at the end of which fire would burn forth from Yemen, 
and would drive people to the place of their assembly. And the popular Islamic picture of the Antichrist is the Dajjal. Now, in 2015, there was an article in the Atlantic. It was written for those that are not too familiar with what's happening in the Middle East, that are wondering, how did Al-Qaeda morph into what we now experience with ISIS? And he chronicles the similarities, but also the differences. And this is incredibly relevant to what we are now looking at in this verse. Bin Laden rarely mentioned the apocalypse, the end times. And when he did, he seemed to presume that he would be long dead when the glorious moment of divine finally arrived. The writer says bin Laden was from an elite Sunni family, one which would look down on this kind of end-time speculation and think it's something that simply the ordinary masses would engage in. But listen now. During the last years of the United States' occupation of Iraq, the Islamic State's immediate founding fathers, by contrast, saw signs. Did you hear that word again? Signs of the end times everywhere. They were anticipating within a year the arrival of the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I, a messianic figure destined to lead the Muslims to victory before the end of the world. Among their beliefs is that the armies of Rome will mass to meet the armies of Islam in northern Syria and that Islam's final showdown with an anti-Messiah Antichrist will occur in Jerusalem after a period of renewed Islamic conquest. The writer goes on. The Islamic State has attached great importance to the Syrian city known as Dabiq. It is here the prophet reportedly said that the armies of Rome will set up their camp. The armies of Islam will meet them and Dabiq will be Rome's Waterloo or its Antietam. He goes on then and says this. Now that it has taken Dabiq, the Islamic State awaits the arrival of an enemy, an enemy army there, whose defeat will initiate the countdown to that final day, the apocalypse. While Western media frequently miss references to Dabiq in the news and focus instead on lurid scenes of beheadings, Quote, here we are burying the first American crusader in Dabiq, eagerly awaiting the remainder of your armies to arrive, said one of those who would sever the head of a, of a man. Goes on to say this. During fighting in Iraq, after the Mujahideen, perhaps inaccurately reported having seen American soldiers in battle. Islamic State Twitter, Twitter accounts, erupted in spasms of pleasure like overenthusiastic hosts or hostesses upon the arrival of the first guests of that final day. You see how relevant this is? And now, 
why we're talking about counterfeits and why we need to understand the significance of all this and how they themselves have a concept of Antichrist and the idea of second comings and all of this as part of their comprehension of Quran. But notice the counterfeit coming in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. The energizing operational activity of Satan. With all power, false signs. Did you hear that word used in that article? And wonders. You're thinking Pharaoh and Egypt all over again. And with all wicked deception. Now you're thinking of the mode of operation in the Garden of Eden with the counterfeiter himself, Satan. For those who are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And you say, but Gary, in this day of delusion, how can I be saved? Go to the first coming. Consider why Jesus came into this world. He came into this world to die for your sins. The Quran has a substitution happening at the cross. Where at the last moment, Jesus is taken down from that cross and has provided a substitute. There is even a counterfeit substitution operational globally. The believers got to understand how past, present, and future God of Eden to that final day, making its way through the landscape of Egypt and all these things comes together here. You spot the threefold signature, power, false signs, wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So I am saved then by putting my faith and trust in the true one, the one who offers the true substitution, not coming down from that cross, but staying upon that cross. Tetelestai. It is finished. You put your faith and trust in Jesus the one who is I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. But you see, just as there is an initial, so there is a final aspect to this time of retribution. If the initial is found there in verse 9 and 10, the final is found in 11 and 12. Therefore God sends them Hold your breath. God sends them a strong delusion. And you say, but you just said that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now God, who sent Jesus into the world to die for my sins, sends likewise a strong delusion to this world in that final day. Why and how? Man, you've been asking good questions this morning. In 1 Kings chapter 22, you're going to want to read that this week. Pick it up at the start, read through verse 23. And then go to Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 10. And understand that just as God in his directive will send Jesus to die for our sins, God in his permissive will not only allows Antichrist to come, But furthermore, God in his permissive will 
allows for the spirit of delusion that is associated with the ultimate delusional tactic, Satan tied to the Antichrist, to be so woven together that in essence God is saying, here, have it your way, so that they may believe what is false. Verse 11. 1948, Arab shell fires racking Jerusalem, the Jewish Jerusalem. The Jews could not answer with the same intensity. They were conserving their supply of ammunition. The Arab commander at that time, Emil Jumain, suffered no such limitations. It was during this time, the historian tells us, that two shells hit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Dome of the Rock. Now, anyone pondering that fact would have chalked it up to the Jews, right? Who else would want to shell the Dome of the Rock? But such thinking would have been wrong because then the writer goes on to say Jumayan had ordered his forces to do the shelling. He was sure that the Israeli army would be blamed for the outrage he wanted to stir up worldwide antipathy toward the Jews. And in this case, events were not what they, what, appeared to be. Think Garden of Eden. One had to know the mystery behind them to get to the truth. And in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So now, you finally exhale as you get to verse 12. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness, who put faith and trust in the lie, when God wants you and me to put faith and trust in the one who says, I am the truth. And now you pull all this together, and you nod your head in agreement with Wayne Gretzky. A great hockey player plays where the puck is, which is where the media is at today. A great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be, and the Christian knows it. And we need to understand how the past, the present, and the future connect together under God's sovereign plan. Let's stand together. So now, Father, we're taking the complexities of world events. We're looking back at history. We've even woven in some hockey. But we see aspects of your sovereign plan everywhere we turn. And what we need to do is not get so caught up in the time-bound moment that we're in that the media so often captures that we fail to take into account the timeless strategy that's unfolding. So, Father, with past, present, and future in mind, and taking all of the time matters and placing them within the eternal context, we thank you for the one who died, who on the third day was raised from the dead, all of which is a precursor to his return. And we give you praise for being the one who is in complete control the one who deserves all the glory. And we praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen.
Kedves jön.